Craig Hoffman. I do think this will be a pretty cool edition of the Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com. Coming up in about 10, 12 minutes, I sat down yesterday with Luke Thomas. Who's Luke Thomas? Some of you likely already know because Luke probably retweeted a link to this here podcast, and that's why you're listening in the first place. Uh, For those of you that don't know who Luke Thomas is, he is uh, a big-time MMA UFC media member, uh, runs MMAfighting.com, SB Nation's and Vox Media's uh, UFC site and MMA site, and does a great job. Also hosts the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM Channel 93, uh, three times a week, 4 to 6 p.m. I was on that show yesterday. Went and talked to Luke and then hung out for the show because D.C. traffic sucks. Um, but yeah, so uh, there was a huge story last week uh, or two weeks ago uh, involving one of his writers uh, who's a big-time UFC media personality, probably the biggest. And so it sparked my interest in UFC and media and how those two uh, interact and the growth of UFC and the role in media. And so I was really interested. And then we talked and there were so many more cool, interesting, I, I use interesting even more than cool, just super interesting storylines that we wound up covering um, as the UFC continues to grow. It's a really, even if you're not interested in UFC, cause I'm not particularly interested in people punching each other in the face. Um, but like, if you're interested in either media, the business of sports, um, or, or anything related to, to that kind of stuff, um, outside, because we don't talk about any of the actual fights at all, how a sport grows, like any of that stuff, this conversation with Luke Thomas is must-listen stuff. Uh, and so we sat down yesterday, and that's going to be in about 10 minutes from right now. But before we get to talking about or talking to a guy who talks about people punching people in the face, I talk about this for a terrible transition. I want to punch some people in the face. That's what I feel like right now. Um, of course, it's just Twitter punch. Like I want to just yell at people on Twitter, which is bad because when I do this, I often just stay, tell myself, like, hey, stop. Quit fighting with people on the internet. But the people on the internet are real people with real thoughts. And you probably found this podcast via the internet because that's how podcasts work. And that makes you a person on the internet. And maybe you're one of the intelligent ones. I hope so. Clearly, you're pretty smart. You're listening to this show. And uh, I'll just get to the point. I'm tired of the LeBron bashing. It infuriates me. And it infuriates me specifically when we talk, and this is a larger LeBron. LeBron gets it worse than anyone. But why have we societally decided that the physical limitations of the human body are an excuse? When did when did science become something... Well, this could go into a whole different direction. But when when did science become something that we go, suck it up. You have to be better. You're the king. You're the best player on earth. I got an idea. How do we blame the guy whose fault it is? That LeBron James is freaking exhausted at the end of the game last night. That Kyrie Irving is freaking exhausted at the end of the game last night. Are those two players without fault? No. Did they do some things last night that helped contribute to their team losing? Yes, and we'll get to those. But holy cow, man. Ty Lue, get it together. 
I thought Brian Windhorst put this really well on the Low Post podcast a couple weeks or a couple days ago. And he said basically when the Cavs panic, everyone goes back to their binky. For Kyrie, it's dribbling in circles and then firing up garbage shots. For Ty Lue, it's playing LeBron without rest the entire second half. And he did it last night, and it cost them. And I went and looked up the LeBron's career playoff record when he plays over 44 minutes. And now this includes a ton of overtime games. Um, there's some where he's played over 50. Um, and, and so this is not exactly perfect comparison. There's no way to sort just regulation games. But when LeBron in the playoffs has played over 44 minutes, he's 53-31. and 31. So, definitely not bad. But LeBron James is in the top 40 all-time in the NBA in minutes. And you know how many, where he is in the playoff rankings? This will stun you if you're not aware. In the history of the NBA, LeBron James is fourth in playoff minutes. Fourth. Tim Duncan's first, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar second, and 400 minutes which is about 10 games, 9 games, in front of LeBron James is Kobe Bryant, who went on how many deep playoff runs? Six finals, ton of series. Tim Duncan has been to six finals, ton of series. And then Kareem, who played for 150 years. That's it. That's the list. In his career, LeBron James has already logged more minutes than Allen Iverson did in his entire career, than Dominique Wilkins did in his entire career. This dude at 31 is on pace to just crush every minutes played record. He is the ultimate physical freak, but even he has limitations. And it's fairly obvious this year that despite that 53-31 and 31 record all-time in the playoffs that suggests that he can do it when playing 44-plus minutes, it's not anymore. Because this season, playoffs and regular season included, the Cleveland Cavaliers are just 2-4 and four when LeBron James plays 44-plus minutes. Here's an idea. Quit yelling at LeBron and blame Ty Lue for playing him into the ground. And I love last night's game because it's all the ammo I could ever need. But who's he going to put in? You can't trust Shumpert. You can't trust Delhi. You can't trust... Last night, Steve Kerr trusted James Michael McAdoo. During the regular season, play your freaking guys. Drives me nuts in the NBA. Because so many coaches do this. Oh, we just, you know, guys didn't get, doesn't have much experience. We, we, we can't trust him. Well, how about this? Give him some experience. You can take the heat during the regular season. This is the finals. It's time to win a championship. Your guy needs to be fresh in the fourth quarter. Because guess who was fresh? Steph Curry. And he looked like the two-time MVP. And he was awesome. He had 38 points last night. Shut a lot of people up. Kyrie Irving. Exhausted. 
started falling into the trap, couldn't he was going ISO, couldn't finish at the rim. And as for LeBron, yeah, I there was a ton of times he should have been looking to score. I think the the biggest criticism of LeBron at this point is he's scared to get fouled, man. Like you got two feet in the paint, you got to you got to go up and if you draw a foul then so be it. But you're LeBron James, you're a tank. He finishes through contact more often than anyone. I mean, how many times have we seen that guy get football tackled on a break and he still lays it in? It and that's a mentality thing. That's not a tired thing. That is a I'm going to get to the rim and put this shot up. When you've got Steph Curry one on one on a fast break, just freaking run him over. You're six nine, two sixty. He's six three, one ninety. Figure it out. And he will, because he's one of the best ever, and I expect him to go out like the champion he is in game five, but he's gonna go out. Like Golden State wins in five. The end, good night. But why can't Lou help him out? And if you don't want Kyrie and LeBron on the bench, then stagger them. Like this isn't like this isn't rocket science. It's minimal math. There's some calculating involved. Figure out a rotation that works for you. Rest LeBron the last three minutes of the third quarter. And that way, he gets the last three minutes plus the quarter break in real-time rest. And then play him the entire fourth if you want. And then Kyrie... Have him play the entire third, rest the first three minutes of the fourth, and then come back in fresh. Something like that. Super common. But this just hatred for LeBron for not putting his head down and going to the rim every single time completely ignores the fact that despite his superhuman abilities at times, he is a human being. The human body is like rechargeable batteries. You you know they they work and then they run out. You put them on the uh, on the little charger in the basketball sense. You put them on the bench. They rest up a little bit. They have a little bit more energy and they can go and perform. But rechargeable batteries, in this case, in my analogy, I don't know if this actually happens to rechargeable batteries, but I bet it does because it makes sense start to, after a while, don't last as long on a full charge. Right? You need to go, they don't, they don't last forever. Eventually, you got to go buy new ones. And that's kind of the off-season. You change out your batteries. We're in June, man. LeBron's played in six straight finals. Played in the Olympics in that stretch, too. Dude doesn't rest much. There's a reason he had to take a sabbatical last year. He was just dead. Done. Could not keep playing. Needed to heal. Needed to recharge the batteries. We're in June. You've got to be smarter than that if you're Ty Lue. And it's exactly what happened in Game 4 in Toronto. That's the worst part about it. Like It's not like this has not happened very recently. this He did the same thing in Game 4 in Toronto, and they ran out of gas down the stretch, and the Raptors won that game. 
This isn't the Eastern Conference Finals. This isn't Toronto. And you're not up 2-1. You're down 2-1. You've got to stay disciplined to what your plan is. And I don't know whether Lou planned on doing that. And by his post-game comments, it sounded like he did. He basically said LeBron's got to be available and suck it up. Um, he was nicer about it and more diplomatic. He wasn't like he called LeBron out. But like he said that, and I literally out loud to the television went, that is a BS answer. We know too much about sports science and the human body and the power of rest, whether it's sleep or just rest within games, to have that answer as an NBA head coach in 2016. That's a sorry answer. Do better. And then if LeBron's fresh and he fails, then you criticize him. But I have a real hard time criticizing a guy who plays as hard as LeBron does, who has as much responsibility as LeBron does, who produces at the level LeBron does when his coach asks more of him than that. Hey, coach, how about you help your guy out every once in a while? And Ty Lue might wind up being a good coach, is a good coach in some aspects already. Clearly has a pulse of his team. But when it comes to minute management, he fails just like so many of LeBron's coaches have failed before. Just because he looks like a superhuman and sometimes plays like one doesn't mean he is one. He's human. It's okay to rest him. Because the goal of his minutes is to produce the world's best basketball, as he is the world's best player. Not for him to just exist on a basketball court in your uniform, because that doesn't help you very much. Craig Hoffman. A quick setup for today's interview. Just one interview, but it's a long sit-down, which I think people will really, really enjoy. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it yesterday. Went down to the SiriusXM studios and sat down before his show uh, with Luke Thomas. Luke is the senior editor of MMA.com and host of the Luke Thomas Show, 4 to 6 p.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday, on SiriusXM channel 93. Uh, He does a really good job. I I was really impressed as I sat in uh, on his show. Um, As someone who's not a huge UFC fan, I was really interested in the stuff he was talking about. Um, So I'm not just blowing smoke. I I really walked away impressed with Luke. Um, And he and I had connected because he's a huge Redskins fan. And so he had reached out to me uh, when I started covering the beat. And I saw that he was another media guy. And uh, so we, we've chatted back and forth uh, a number of times, but that's how we know each other. But Luke's site, MMA.com, or MMAfighting.com, has a writer uh, and personality uh, named Ariel Hawani, a fine Syracuse graduate. Uh, and Ariel was in the news a couple of weeks ago because he got banned by the UFC. He was literally escorted out of a fight um, and then told he was banned for life for breaking the news that Brock Lesnar was coming back. He had a scoop. He reported it. The UFC got super mad and said they banned him for life. Well, because Ariel Hawani is a big deal in the UFC and has had some crossover into mainstream media, he used to work for Fox Sports 1, um, which there's some deadspin stuff out there about how that whole relationship worked and whether how much he was really working for the UFC. Regardless, he's definitely an independent journalist now and uh, was working for MMAfighting.com and still is working for MMAfighting.com and basically was banned for doing his job, and that got a lot of attention. He's since been reinstated, um, 
as has the other people with Luke's site who got banned. Um, but luckily, Luke uh, was willing to talk about it, and I, I guess a big thanks to Vox Media, um, who runs that site, SB Nation site, um, for that for letting him talk about it, and he was honest. And what I found was we wound up getting into a lot of other interesting topics as well. So that's the setup. In case you weren't familiar with the Ariel Hawani story and why I'm sitting down with Luke, that's who Luke is. Again, he's the senior editor of MMAfighting.com, and. Without further ado, here's the chat yesterday with Luke Thomas. Just for you personally, um, what's your background first in MMA and mm-hmm. why that subject matter is interesting to you? And then as a journalist and your background in journalism, what, how did you get started in, in that? Right. So first disclaimer, I don't speak for the site or Vox Media. This is, These are merely my opinions. You know, people put on Twitter, like, yeah, retweets are not re- endorsements. Yeah, not endorsements. This is not, I don't speak for Vox Media, I can only speak for myself. So personally, uh, with MMA, uh, all this is completely by accident. My life was edited. I don't know if in a dramatically different direction, but in a very different direction. Uh, I had majored in philosophy at William and Mary. Uh, I yeah. took one philosophy class in college, and I could not do it. Really? Just I couldn't. Could not, I could not. I couldn't not do it after. Here, my first here was class. my seminal moment of of philosophy class. This is a fun aside, so I'll tell it, and it's my podcast, so I can do whatever the hell I want. Yes, you can. This is glorious. Um, I feel the power. And this control. is at Syracuse. This is at Syracuse. Okay. Um, I took one philosophy class, and I got to the point where I just—I literally could not focus, and I had no purpose for it, and it was awful. And so I went to the teacher's assistant, and I said, look, I'm having a lot of trouble. Tell me why I should care. And she goes, well, philosophy is about teaching you how to argue. And I was like, okay, as a talk show host, I can do that. I can focus on that. Well, then another couple weeks went by, and I realized that every single argument of philosophy is flawed. And that's kind of the point, is that there's holes in all of these arguments. And so I concluded that all the old dead white guys' philosophy sucked and that they weren't (laughs) the right people to teach me how to argue. And so I was out again on philosophy. That was my philosophy experience. But so you committed the act of philosophy, uh, philosophy or the act of philosophization, if that's even a word, uh, philosophizing any word, anyway, to, to, to then abandon the study of historical philosophy. Yes. They got, they got you no matter what. Damn it. And I didn't know it until right now. But anyway, you survived more than one Sur- philosophy su- class. Survived and it and absorbed it. Uh, I don't know where William & Mary ranks in terms of undergrad for philosophy, but I had I, I double majored also in government. And the government there, uh, the, you know, political science, they, they, they call it things differently, but it's what it was. And uh, I remember feeling like the philosophy studies were like dramatically more uh, interesting and difficult, but like in a rewarding, enriching kind of way. Uh-huh. And anyway, so I just took that and graduated from uh, college and moved to New York with a bunch of, oh, I should say, uh, a bunch of clothes and not a lot of money and uh, <laughs> just found odd jobs. I'm not kidding. Writing on in, anywhere I could on any almost any topic I could, but largely, um, well, I should say just anything I could from advertising copy to, um, to uh, you know, what was happening in Iran at the time to social media to whatever, just any kind of writing gig I could find, but all under the idea I should be arguing for things. And I was bouncing at bars at nights. I'm not kidding. That's, I couldn't pay the rent otherwise. Yeah. Found a gig that brought me back to D.C. Um, eventually wound up working for, uh, not that I'm proud of this, but I took the job because, again, it was, at the time, I thought, what could you argue um, for Frank Luntz, who is a political pollster and speechwriter uh, for the GOP, but I remain politically agnostic, at least relative to his views. I'll put it that way. Um, and then MMA was kind of blowing up. I had studied, um, I had done the Marine Corps martial arts program. I was in the Marine Corps from 98 through 204, so through college, I was a reservist. 
And uh, I had I had seen UFC four back in the day from a family friend, and I sort of always had his interest in it, but it, it never didn't even occur to me to be a thing. Then I moved here, and I got really bored. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. Like I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was so broke. I couldn't live in the city. I was living in Oxon Hill, Maryland. And I remember an advertising came on TV, and there was a gym three miles from the house. And I looked at the gym, and the gym was like a world-class gym. They had guys in the UFC. This is when no one was in the UFC. They had guys in the UFC at that time, and guys I remember watching on TV, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy trains there? Yeah, I couldn't, three miles from I, your I, house. I couldn't believe it. And I, and I was living in a dump, yeah. in a dump, you know, a crime-ridden dump at that. I didn't care about self-defense. I just wanted to go see what it was all about, and it was like it blew my mind. But the, here's a long story short: I remember being like, "I want to read more about this. I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to be involved in this in some capacity." And there was nothing. There was nothing out there. I mean, there was forums, and there were a couple of just like really terrible sites. So I decided to start writing, but writing in a way that was absent. And my favorite political blogger is Andrew Sullivan, uh, who now does not blog anymore. And I was like, "I'm going to take what he does." And I'm going to bring it to MMA. And long story short, the career has taken a number of different turns, but that's the genesis. So I have no formal formal journalism background whatsoever. That's really interesting. And but yet you were on the ground floor of MMA journalism. Like there was nothing, and that's why you went into it. Right. Basically, and it and there's also the key component here that didn't get told in that one was that I think it was really good timing for me, which is right before all this. Okay, so I was involved, and then before. Um, before had anything become popular, I was writing and, and being interested in it, and then The Ultimate Fighter hit. And the Ultimate Fighter was on Spike TV at the time, and mm. that blew up. And then one thing kind of cascaded after, into another, and then Brock Lesnar came along. And uh, this, I remember the first time Brock Lesnar fought, I, I, I was really diligent about monitoring my sight meter traffic. I remember the night after he fought, I looked at the traffic, and I, I literally laughed at my laptop. I, I thought it was a typo. I couldn't believe it. It was like the bar chart was like this, and then it went like that. Yep. And that was the first time in my life it dawned on me, and I was like, if I can get this, I can make a living doing this. Yeah, wow. Which, funny, that is Brock Lesnar, because right. we'll, we'll come full circle right. to him. Um I'm curious, so you mentioned Ultimate Fighter, and there, there's all these different kinds. You said you know, very early you, you were into the UFC specifically. Mm. What is it about the UFC that has made it the premier of all the MMA circuits? Because there have been others. You know, Bellator was in the, in the news this week when, yep. when Kimbo Slice, unfortunately, passed away. What is it about the UFC, and I'm curious if this also adds another tangent to the story because of media coverage, because I'm guessing that's got to be some part of it, but what is it about UFC that has made it king of the hill? Boy, it's a very difficult question to answer, so I'll make it as sim- simple as I can. They uh, they got a little bit of luck. You know, I think everyone who's ever done well in business will say that. Of course, of course they always had a lot of bad luck, too. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to say that. But on balance, they've had luck. Um, they are ruthless, ruthless competitors. <clears throat> Excuse me. In ways good and bad. And um, I, I, it, it's not much more complicated than that. The, the MMA and, and, frankly, the fight sports world, this is true for boxing. You can feel it now. It is a boom and bust sport, right? When there are stars, it is hot. You know, when Mayweather, I covered Mayweather Pacquiao. I, there, there, you can, you can, it, that was, in terms of the audience there, no, it wasn't as big. But in terms of the media that was there, you know, the Super Bowl media day will get more, but not the way in which Mayweather Pacquiao did. There was, that was a global event, truly a global event. But that's at its hottest. And now that Mayweather and Pacquiao are basically gone, who's the top guy out there? It's Canelo. And he's big, but you can see it goes like this. MMA is the same way from the Valley Tudo days and early or the mid-20th century in Brazil. These sports just lend themselves to moments of hot fire and then very cold um, distance. Anyway, the UFC was 
an interesting product as it came along. Interesting, we all know the story in 1993, and it evolved into what it was. But the reason why it has endured is because they have managed to find a way to, they still feel the boom and the bust, but they ride a middle ground much better than everyone else. Um, they've been very good about, um, how the success in this business is not, is not merely defined by the heights you reach, but by how long you can stay in it. And if you yeah. see a journalist who's been in it for 10 years, wow, man, they're doing something right, you know? Um, so when all of their competitors, like Pride in Japan, who wound up getting involved with the Yakuza, they got bought out by UFC. And Strikeforce was a really great competitor here stateside to the UFC. They eventually went out of business. Well, not out of business. They got bought out. Why? Because the people who had in, uh, who had backed them, I guess, decided their financial returns weren't worth it anymore. And just slowly but surely, they kind of climbed. Now, they obviously have smart matchmakers. They've got, they view themselves as a vertically integrated company. They, they view themselves as not merely people who put on fights, but they put on, they, they create tons of digital media and uh, they see themselves as, as doing both of those things. So they have grand ambition uh, in ways that the other ones didn't. But I think more than that, they, they really, um, they are, you, you just can't understate it. To, to the long story short, they are absolutely, I mean, white knuckle competitors with everything and anything in their way. So how would you categorize the relationship between the UFC and not ESPN or Fox Sports 1 or FS1 as they want to be called now? Um, but the the quote unquote local media, the people like you who cover this sport on a daily basis, how would you categorize that relationship between the organization and the quote unquote local media? Well, this is one that has um, I call them indigenous media, right? Because local to me would be like CSN Washington, right? I just I couldn't. That's yeah. a better word. I could not yeah. think of the the, the like specific direct media. Yeah, yeah. I, I refer to it as indigenous. Media. I like that. I'm stealing that. Yeah, that's, that's good. I'm stealing it right here, recorded <laughs> on all of these audio <laughs> devices that I'm recording on. Um, yeah, so it's it's a contentious one for a very long time because they do the majority. They they need the majority of the access and they receive the brunt of all the. They 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 need the most access. They know the most secrets. They feel uh, the most intense both appreciation and um, you know pushback. And that's not merely from UFC. I got to be honest. A lot of the other promoters in the space they ape what the UFC does, even without their power structure. You know, it's, here's a true story. Like the UFC, and I, I wrote this. That I did a roundtable for uh, Richard Deitch in Sports Illustrated, and there are other guys who are as seniors me or more in the in the business who have had these rough go ins with. My credentials yanked. Were they not yanked? And I've never had my credentials threatened by the UFC ever. That doesn't mean I haven't had some issues with them, but mm-hmm. when it comes to that, however, Strike Force, which was on CBS, which was on Showtime, I definitely had my credentials threatened by them uh, in a very serious way one time. Now, I didn't take that threat seriously because I didn't care, but <laughs> nevertheless, I got a really angry phone call one time, and they legitimately directly threatened it. Um, the way I would describe it is there was a long time where they were, uh, there was nothing to have an, a relationship with. There was no such media to, to speak of. That has changed now. They, they, they've actually become an institution in certain ways. You know, before, even if you were a guy who wrote for Sports Illustrated, you may be turning a column once a month. That's not really MMA media. That's media who might dabble in MMA. And now, to your point, or the, you know, we were sort of trying to decipher the term, now there is such a thing as indigenous MMA media. And I work for Vox Media, um, and then there's Brett Okamoto at ESPN, but he's a dedicated on the beat guy. Right. That didn't exist 10 years ago, right? You have to understand that. Like, this thing just is, is sort right. of new. So, for the full contact fighters, which is an old institution, for SureDog, which is a remaining but an old institution, um, there was a time when they had their press credentials yanked, uh, I believe in 06 or 07. They were all eventually reinstated, but it has been, it has been difficult. It has been undulating. It has been, um, 
it has been at times uh, positive, and it has been at other times uh, quite difficult. Here's the point to tie it all together. This whole area of Hawaii situation that got brought up, it, it, this was the first time the national media saw what we feel all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, not so much getting our credentials yanked. Again, mine have never been yanked. But that the UFC certainly has a view of media that they believe you should be a secondary arm of PR. That's not everyone in the organization. That's not even all of the PR staff. Um, but they certainly don't like either adversarial media, adversarial opinion, and they certainly don't like people asking questions. Uh, Dana White, he doesn't do as many interviews as he used to, but he used to be a famous refrain of his used to be like, you'd ask him a question, a pointed one, and he'd be like, it's none of your business. And we'd be like, right, it actually is our business. This is, I'm paid to do this. Like, right. I mean, it's not Luke Thomas's business, but I'm representing Vox Media, and it, this, yeah, this is what we do. So, um, it has been contentious at times, and it has been other times quite pleasant, but it is all over the map. Along those lines of what is your business, what's not, um, I always think, and, and I'll speak to my own, uh, and this is going to be a rambling introduction into a question, um, but like, I never consider myself a journalist with a capital J, so to speak. Like, I very much believe, and at times probably to a fault when I was in a talk show host capacity, that journalistic principles need to be adhered to. But at the end of the day, when you're a talk show host, like you're an entertainer in a journalism medium or in, in, in you know, some kind of medium for what you guys do. And, but also I should, you know, continue with that saying like when I was a reporter and if there was anything involving breaking news or anything serious news, that's when you had to put your capital J journalist hat on. But, but I felt like I had the freedom to kind of go between those two functions for what you guys do and for what Ariel was doing as we kind of dive into his situation specifically, do you guys consider yourself a journalist with capital J or, or is there more of an entertainment side to what you're doing? Because, um, I mean, obviously the UFC, as you said, they kind of want to see you as a PR arm and, and there should be pushback there. Yeah, and I think most sports leagues feel that way too, by the way. They, yeah. may, they may be less hostile when And you're a lot not. of them are figuring out ways to hire people that are right. really PR arms it's and ama- they kind of... Yeah, it's amazing to me that, like, we have all these people who work for the NFL Network. I cannot imagine. I mean, I could imagine ex-athletes working for the UFC Network or something like that. But in my in my world, that's like, you got to be kidding me. But, um, but uh, okay, um, I don't know what to call myself is the, is the true answer. <laughs> I mean, we're not confusing capital J journalists with someone reporting on a war. Like, there, right. there, there can obviously be del- uh, we're, not, we're not talking about this. the Pentagon Papers here. Right, you know? but there's still the same principles apply yes. um, if, in answering this question. So this is a question I actually got from my dad once. He was like, what is so serious about your job? And the answer is, to a large extent, nothing. If I'm talking about who has the—it's who, who has the, it's true, right? I right. Mean, no, you're I cover, absolutely right. I cover guys who are excellent, excellent at punching each other in the face. I mean, they are— the the best in the world. <laughs> what is so serious about that? Well, it turns out when you dig a little bit, it actually can become serious, right? right. We covered the Cleveland Clinic brain study. Um, you may take this for granted because you come from NBA or NFL where they these guys are employees of their teams and they have a trade associations or unions backing right. them. Free agency is brand new in MMA. And it really, we call it free agency. There really is no free agency. It's just argue between contracts. Um, you may not know this. For example, if you're a fighter and you're in the EA uh, UFC video game, you don't get a penny of that. Moreover, you have to sign your likeness rights away in perpetuity to do that. These create very, in my mind, profound, complex, and important legal questions. Absolutely. Right. It's the same stuff that we've been talking about with the NCAA for years. Right, right. And this is, I, I actually mentioned this to Richard Deitch once. It was like, I just don't get why the media is so hostile to the NCAA, the, I call it NCAA because of wrestling, but the NCAA, um, and I understand why you are, and yet here we have this sport where many of these questions have carryover 
and there's virtually no examination. And the truth I did is, know that, to be honest with you. Right. That's, that's, I think, the answer. Right. And I think part of it is simply that there's just, there's just uh, they don't know, right? They don't right. have that core competency. But I think there's more to it than that. Because when I say I cover MMA for a living, people inherently assume, and again, part of it I understand, it's an unserious activity. Mm-hmm. And it is. But this is a $4 billion business. Exactly. With brains being battered on the line, with complex legal and international financial questions being involved. Those have been the ones over time that have raised the most ire. This, they had this, I don't know if you know, they have this new Reebok deal. This was entirely forced on them as independent contractors, right? They had no say in this whatsoever. There is a real question to be asked is if the fighters, and I don't know that they will, but if they ever took the UFC to court and they got reclassified as employees, how difficult would that be? There is reason to believe it would not be that difficult. That's a matter of importance, right? Yeah. And that's, God, that could be another whole fun podcast of, <laughs> okay, well, the difference, you know, they're, they're adults versus, you know, 18-year-old kids, and, you know, could they go unionize? And I that's probably stuff you guys are covering. All day, um, every day. That's always been my answer, too, is the games, as much as that's what I enjoy the most about the NBA or the NFL, um, those, are, those really aren't that serious. We're playing for a trophy. Um, which is sweet and you work your whole life for it and, and the intricacies of strategy and how you get there are fascinating to me endlessly. But why this matters is because in your case, UFC four or MMA, $4 billion business in the NFL, it's nine to 10 or in the NBA, it's something yeah. similar. So yeah, no, this absolutely does matter because these are major American businesses that have a, a, a just monstrous economic impact. Also, real quickly to add on that, yeah. you know, Steph Curry, he may have the worst shoes in the world, as he put out on Twitter last <laughs> night, but he's a well-paid guy. Yeah. Right? We can all agree by any measurement he's a wealthy guy. There are obviously very well-paid guys in the UFC and ladies, too. Ronda Rousey is very well-compensated. Absolutely. Conor McGregor is well-compensated. But then you get these middle-ground guys who they can make six figures, but they'll take a beating over their lives. And they did get health insurance, but it's only accident health insurance. It it's not comprehensive. And you begin to wonder... Is there what is the moral trade-off here? Are they really being fully compensated for what they've given? Have they been promoted in the way they should have been promoted? Have they been treated in the way they should have been treated? Are these contracts fair? You guys are in a position where that, those questions are not entirely, but largely settled. We mm-hmm. are in a space where they are not settled at all. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, I'm sure if we wanted to deep dive back into the history of the NFLPA, the NBAPA, yeah. the Major League Baseball Players Union, these probably very early on were some of the key figures. And, I mean, not knowing enough about it, I, I'd be curious to see if these issues keep start to rise to prominence, would the fighters, because it would take more than just the top guys, because if the UFC is as ruthless as they appear to be, and as you say they are, which I absolutely believe they are, and you see that from Dana White as, as the leader of the organization, They'll always find the next guy who wants to fight. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to be out there wanting that payday. And it takes the entirety of the the employees or the, the want-to-be employees in this case to come together and say, we're not accepting any of your money until these demands are met. Leverage is only as good as your options. And if you've got Jimmy over here who's like, yeah, if they don't want to fight, I'm in. Yep. I'll take that six-figure payday and the rest be damned. Right. Then you don't make any progress. So that's fascinating. And I, you feel like eventually something will happen because there will be public pressure. But, man, that's that's interesting. We could we could go off on that forever. Yeah, forever. Um, so with Ariel, what, in your view, happened? Um, yeah. And that's a loaded question, but, but kind of from your view – 
Um, what happened? How did you become aware of him being escorted out of uh, this massive UFC event? And, and what did you guys do? So just for a background, I, on fight nights, I have a variety of different responsibilities. Uh, sometimes I go to events. For example, Ariel couldn't go to UFC, I think it was 140, which was Jones versus Rashad Evans in Atlanta. I covered for him in the role that he currently occupies, which is video reporter. I also do some video reporting for Bellator. I'm kind of a guy of all hats on the site. Mm -hmm. But typically for a UFC event, when we send out Ariel, we send out Casey, we send out Esther, we usually send out one more beat, sometimes two more beat reporters, depending on the scale of the event. This was we, this we sent out one more, I believe. Although we had another one there for a different outlet. But, okay, long story short, I will do videos, I will do photos as they come in. I remember the photo stopped, and I remember uh, the video stopped, and then I saw on Twitter Arrow sort of just talking about it in real time. So then I asked my boss of the site, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know, just 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 try to act normal tonight. We'll just we'll figure this out as it goes along. So in terms of what happened, I mean, you know, Ariel's going to tell it better than I could, but look, he's got a more complicated relationship, not merely with the UFC than any of us do, because... Um, you know, he has a higher profile, his thing is breaking news, so he's got all of these different relationships that he's on the phone with all the time and, and whatnot, and, and he obviously he's, he's quite gifted at it, right? He's, gotten, he's done really yeah. well from himself, he breaks news all the time, and not always, again, not always uh, the biggest news ever, but sometimes he does break the biggest news ever, and then today he'll break, a, you know, White has been, has been out because someone's due to injury or something like that, so he really sort of covers all his bases, but I feel like the UFC just, they, they really believe, and I, and, I tr and, and I mean this, not sympathetically, but I, I can reason through it. They, they want to have the control of information. They want to know how the information is getting released. They want to time it on their own. They want everything to be on their own. If you go and watch them set up for events, they have the most meticulous checklist imaginable for how the lights look, for how the sound looks. For example, a lot of boxing promoters... Golden Boy, top rank. They'll hire a production company to put on their shows. The UFC's production company is in-house. Wow. They control it because they want to have final say. You ever notice that the commentators, some some have Fox Sports contracts. I think John Anik is, has a Fox Sports contract. But their commentators are in-house. It's actually been a point of contention because the guys talking to the audience at home, they're paid for the by the UFC. So they're going to say things. Now, Rogan has done a really, frankly, a really admirable job at trying to dance around that. But it's different than listening to Jim Lampley on HBO. He's paid by HBO. He's not paid by Top Rank. Right. So when a fight sucks, <laughs> he says it. He says yeah. it. But here's, so when you, when you understand this, like, panopticon that they want to have, when you understand they had this worldview that they have, I don't agree with it. But this is, I think, they... They just believe, or again, I can't speak for the UFC, but my hunch is that they had had a number of things that Ariel had done in recent times where they just didn't agree with it, whether it was interviewing a fighter about free agency, a famous one in Rory McDonald, whether it was breaking news. Again, this was innocuous news that he broke. I don't think it ruined the show at all. I think, in fact, it, it added to the intrigue. But they perceived it as getting in the way of how they want to have that done, and so I think they got angry for a while. Now, cooler heads prevailed. They're smart. They have Harvard guys. They have guys who went to Harvard Law running some of their part of their company, Lawrence Epstein. They're smart, but they certainly also, um, you know, they're they're prone to exaggerated behavior sometimes. Um, in the end, as you look back, is there anything you guys, as a site, um, whether you, it's from you or from above you and Vox and whoever? Again, you're not speaking for Vox, but right. just in your conversations and for what you can share, um, is there anything you guys would have had him do differently? No, I don't think so. In this particular case, I really don't think so. Um, but I will say that, you know, this has been a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment, not merely for how the media, the MMA media, perceive themselves relative to the UFC, but also in looking inward. 
And, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, have we done things as good of a job as we as we uh, could? Obviously not. Have we maintained all the ethical standards that we should have? And I'm not saying that uh, all of us are, you know, on the take from every promotion ever, but even small things, have we done all the little things right? I don't know that we could. And, and here's the bigger part. And again, you may not know this. And I think 06 or 07, I have to get the dates right. Um, Josh Gross was running a site called TrueDog.com, which was one of the more original uh, popular sites, still one of the bigger sites around. Um, he was banned from the UFC after he turned down a job from them. And then Loretta Hunt was thrown out, uh, was banned, but blackballed. And I, th- I think at the time she was at Sports Illustrated, but she was or maybe she was at Sherdog as well. Um, a guy named Jonathan Snowden has been blackballed more recently for stuff. He wrote an article, I think it was for UFC 174, saying fans should not buy this because it was a pay-per-view event because the card was so bad. And I can tell you that the card was bad. They perceived that, if I understand the the timeline of events correctly. They perceived that to be an outrageous slight. Um, I think Dana White said it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen a reporter say. To me, it's quite within the boundaries of normal editorial content. Absolutely. But those guys are still blackballed. And here's the truth. Ariel definitely, to me, is a categorically different case. Because if it can happen to him, nobody is safe. Truly, that is a threat to the entirety of MMA coverage. That's why Ariel is different. And so I'm not glad that this happened to my colleague. But uh, I am glad that it happened to someone of his stature in the sense, in an abstract sense, because it raised the total issue for the first time the sports world really saw how sometimes so seriously aggressive they can get. But the truth is, we normalized the ostracism of people like Josh Gross, of people like Loretta Hunt, of people like Jon Snowden, and that's wrong, and that's not okay, and we really need to use this moment to bring them back into the fold, because these guys were not blackballed for anything unethical, they were just blackballed because the UFC has the discretion to say yay or nay on credentials. So, in the end, um, are you satisfied with the UFC's response? To Ariel, yes. Um... And to my, and also, of course, you may not know this either. And I, you can, if anyone hears this and thinks this is wrong, I, I certainly encourage you to challenge it. Um, Esther and Casey are our uh, photographer and videographer, respectively, and they're um, set to get married, by the way, which is kind of a cool story. But um, they are the best at what they do in the business. They, the, she is the best photographer. She did Mayweather Pacquiao for Showtime, um, and uh, he is probably the, he is more unheralded. People really sort of respond strongly to her, and I don't think Casey gets nearly the credit that he should. But in any case, so they were reinstated as well, and I appreciate that. That's good, but it's simply it's simply not enough. It really is not. Um, you know, look, everyone always makes this argument about, well, the UFC and really any organization, they have the right to um, revoke credentials whenever they see fit. This is not a question about whether you have the, what you have the right to do, which I don't want to take away the rights from them. There are going to be small media outlets, for example, some guy on his own blog. There's nothing wrong with that. But do you deserve a front row seat at UFC 200 for that? No, you don't. I yeah. mean, th- there is some there is tenure and seniority and those kinds of things matter. And and they should have discretion over that. But there are these norms that we that you guys sometimes and I and I envy you that you take for granted. Like even Dan Snyder, he's got his issues and he certainly has had moments that he's done bad things with the media, but you know, 1067 the fan can still get a ticket or a, a credential to go attend these events. They can yeah. still go to the locker room. Right. Um we have not we have we are we are so far from that place that until that kind of norm is established with us, uh, I, I the work the response is not good enough. Do you think that this incident getting national attention will push you closer in that direction? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, I mean, I don't want to reveal things I'm not at liberty to reveal, but I do believe that um, a lot of journalists feel the way that I do right now, and the, 
uh, would articulate similar viewpoints to what I'm articulating. Um, how you get from A to B is a very difficult question. You know, if you know the history between Dana White and Josh Gross, Dana White seems, I mean, to call him resolute on never allowing Gross back into a UFC event would be a, a, a an understatement of the century. Um, Although, you know, we'll see what happens with this sale. Maybe he moves on and this becomes a moot point. I don't know, you know. But nevertheless, we don't want this to happen where if someone is, you know, you shouldn't have to be Ariel Helwani to get the Ariel Helwani protections, right? Yeah. I'm glad he got those, 100%. Don't get me wrong. But um, those should be extended to everybody. Everybody who really is a real member of the community. If this doesn't get national attention, is he still banned? Like if ESPN... Or actually, it was really, I don't know how much ESPN really done this, but like Richard Deich, if yep. he doesn't pick this up, um, and a lot of other prominent national journalists that are not indigenous, to use your term, yeah. uh, to the MMA, don't pick this up, is he still banned? Probably not. I think cooler heads would have prevailed. You know, look, banning Ariel is not in the UFC's interest. I know they were angry at the time, but if you look at the body of his work, um, it doesn't serve them to keep a guy like that on the fringe, right? I don't, you know, I don't think he's going to go out there tomorrow and like, hey, what can I do for the UFC's bidding? I don't think it works that way necessarily. But uh, at the same time, he wants to produce quality work. He wants to have smart, interesting interviews. Over time, if his work has been so damaging, it's not. I don't see much evidence of it. UFC seems to be doing just fine by my my measurement. But um, to your point, I think he would have. But I think this hastened it, and I think. You know, first of all, let's remember the context here. They are in the middle of a sale, right? So mm-hmm. I think they were like, uh, we don't want to invite this kind of scrutiny or criticism at this very critical juncture. But more than that, um, they've got a reputation inside MMA, you know, for being, um, you know, not the most, you know, they're not going to join any kind of press freedoms associations anytime soon. Um, it, but, you know, it, it sort of became a norm. And, and even then, I, that, that doesn't even really bother me. Like, inside MMA squabbles, I don't know that I get too hung up on, but uh, this was the first time they came within a hair's breadth, and maybe they already did, maybe the damage was done, of developing a reputation among you guys. And that yeah. is a uh, that is a bridge too far Us, for them. Us, the crooked media out here. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. one thing to be like, well, SureDog.com, and look, MMAFighting.com is a huge site, but it's not ESPN. It's just not, you yeah. know? Um, do you want to get sideways with those well, it's, people? It's, so this was kind of one of the questions that we've kind of answered. Um but, like, the minute Sports Center doesn't want to have the fighters on, that to me is when UFC goes, "All right, this is this is bad," because that's how you bring in that fringe audience. Like the 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 super MMA fan who's reading your site, they're gonna buy that pay per view anyway. But a fringe fan who's got a little bit of disposable income who sees whoever, whether it's Ronda Rousey or John Jones or, right. um, you know, upcoming Brock Lesnar on SportsCenter and goes, oh, that fight's this Saturday? This guy's kind of interesting. This girl's kind of interesting. Right. I'm in. Right. Like, that's how you grow the sport. I mean, it's got to happen that way. Um, you have to reach those people in order to bring them in. And so if they piss off ESPN or FS1 or whoever, they're getting their message out to that fringe fan who might become a more diehard fan that's when they get in trouble, and as you said, this this threatened that relationship. So think about the just the, the the finances of this, right? If you had to estimate how many hardcore fans there are, now fans that may not buy every single UFC pay-per-view, but let's say buy enough to meet some loose definition of hardcore fandom. It's at its most, at its very highest, it's probably about 300,000 people, okay? These are the, the diehards, as we call them. Anything else beyond that is gravy. 
That's your casual fan base. That's the guys who, to your point, if Brock is fighting, if John Jones is fighting, if Ronda is fighting, and you know Ronda can extend to four or five, six, seven, past yeah. a million in terms of pay per view buys, she can go into that territory. Um, that's where you don't want to threaten because who is the biggest mixed martial arts consumer in terms of size? It's the casual audience. It's the casual audience, and moreover, who's the least tolerant of? Can I curse? Yeah, sure. Who's the, who's the least tolerant of any kind of bullshit out there? It's the casual fan. They have the most capricious whims. People like me, I have to be there on Saturday night when the right. fight's going on. And my friends who are like me, they're, they're going to be there, to your point. It doesn't matter if they get shit on or whatever. They're going to be there. Um, but when you begin, not, it's one thing to say Richard Deitch just ignores what had happened. Mm. It's another one to say oh, we can get his endorsement. It's even a third one to say... He's talking negatively about this, and Rachel Nichols, mm-hmm. and uh, Scott Van Pelt had an aerial on, and I, the list goes on and on. When they turn the guns back on you, that's when the whole show changed. That is such a ma- to your point about leverage. It's a leverage role, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. And and when you you know when you deal with these major media institutions, over again, this was not an unethical thing he had published. That I think would have made the situation more complicated. He just posted Brock Lesnar's coming back to the UFC. This is not an, even a slight. And if it is, it's the most innocuous kind imaginable. So the, the guy they did it to, the way in which they did it, and then the response they got from a new audience, the, the people, the, 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 the guardians at the gate, for the most pers- important audience they have, they just couldn't risk crossing that bridge. So last kind of thing here. Um, I think that the fight, the fight game, so to speak, um, you know, you have boxing, obviously, you have MMA now. There's also the the outside wrestling and, you know, pro wrestling of it not being a true competition. It is scripted. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there any, um, this is a, might be a completely whacked out thought, or it might be something that the UFC is conscious of, um, from an image standpoint, making sure that, trans, like, to me, transparency should be important because you don't want to get any kind of inclination like, hey, this could be scripted or fixed, because all sports fight that on some level, but because there is this similarity in the actual physical contact and and what is performed to professional wrestling, does that ever enter the equation? Um, especially, I mean, look, in professional terms, in terms of what though, like what pieces like just, of information just as an as an image thing. Like, there's no real quote unquote media that's covering professional wrestling. There's there guys, you know, my my boy Peter Rosenberg up in New York does a great wrestling podcast that a lot of people listen to, um, but it's we all understand it's entertainment. Like, how much is the UFC concerned with the integrity of the sport? I guess that's a better way to ask okay, it. Okay, so here's... How, how much is, are they concerned with that, and then how, what role does the media play? Because you're asking, like, why is the UFC so good? And I guess I didn't... I improperly answered it up front, because this is important to it. Um, but it, nevertheless, there's a negative... I mean, I hate to say the word negative, but there's a negative slant you can take. So why is the UFC so good? And this is an important thing. I have very little concern about the integrity of their product. There are some reasons to believe that during the era where guys could use something called testosterone replacement therapy, there may have been at least one incident where not everything was necessarily above board, but it's it's hard exactly to say. It's inconclusive. But generally speaking, the UFC have been the best stewards of this sport by a country mile. Mm-hmm. They not only signed the best talent and they not only have some of the smartest matchmakers in there, but they just care about making sure the sport has longevity. I truly believe that. I don't think anyone who knows anything about the UFC could ever really debate that. That doesn't mean they don't make mistakes time to time like every organization, but in terms of making sure they don't go too far in one direction, circus show or whatever the case may be, um, boy, they are excellent at it. And I, and I, frankly, I trust them to do the job correctly. I really do. So there is that. You know, They really run an efficient, smart, competent, and... I won't say safe product, but um, you know they keep within they they stay in their lane, and that's really critical because you look at these other promoters, 
and they just don't. Uh, okay. However, think of it this way. We go back to the original question. You know, what about the amount of transparency? What about the media's role in sort of trying to make this an issue and, and trying to fo- follow it where it goes? In many ways, we are stumped. The UFC is a private company. We, they don't get access to financials. There, We had a congressman on my show um I guess Wednesday, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, he has introduced legislation into Congress, that's still in committee, of course, it has a long way to go, but it would extend the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act to MMA. Now, why is that relevant for this conversation? It's relevant because in boxing, the promoter has to tell the fighter how much money they made per event and how they made it, sales, concessions, whatever the case may be, um, closed circuit, whatever. There is no law like that in MMA. There is no law like that in MMA. You are flying blind in that regard. There are so many dead ends on this. In certain states, because MMA is not regulated in a federal level, it's regulated state by state. You go to commission in Jersey, you have to get a license there. You go to Nevada, you have to get a license there. Um, In Nevada, those medical records for fighters, they are considered to be uh, open and available for public uh, consumption and that has actually been very beneficial for us in doing our jobs, particularly in the era of TRT, which is now banned testosterone replacement therapy mm-hmm. in New Jersey. All, all that's sealed. We have so many dead ends you cannot possibly imagine. It really limits our ability to do our job in a functional way. Um, so you know, I, I don't know to what extent some of these other sports organizations are public. I haven't done the done the research mm-hmm. on it enough to know. But depends on what roads you go down. Right. I, I smirked when you started talking about dead ends because I was thinking back to Robert's concussion and trying to find out what in the hell happened with, with Robert Griffin III's concussion last August. And man, you want to talk about dead ends. Is this ends. the one after the preseason Ravens yeah, game? Yeah. The, the, the mystery concussion that he swears he didn't have and to this day swears he didn't have. Right. Um, and trying to figure out the process of the NFL's concussion protocol. That was... That's the biggest dead end I've ever chased. Right. The so, biggest the biggest circle I've ever gone in. And, and we have reporters who have, and I should give them credit where it's due, we have a guy named Paul Gift, who's an attorney who, who does MMA journalism on his spare time. We have another guy named John Nash. They are only and utterly consumed with these questions. They don't do fight previews. When they watch fights, they like them. But this is what they do. Um, I don't think they're ever going to make a ton of money doing it, you know, but I don't think they're in, the, in this to make a ton of money doing right. it. But to your point... I think more than other sports, we are we are working with such limited information and how we get to a point where we can open those doors and open those windows and have more sunlight, boy, I am all for suggestions. Yeah. Well, good luck. That's yeah. my suggestion. <laughs> um, but, hey, I, I, this has been incredibly enlightening for me, uh, far more than I thought, frankly, because um, learning about some of these issues is really, really fascinating to me. And um, the journalism angle – is was interesting, but all these other issues that are out there that I I'd be curious and um, as we put this this podcast out to see you know you can tweet Luke at SBN Luke Thomas right mm-hmm. yeah worst uh, name ever on Twitter but I'm stuck with it I just use my name so if you think my name sucks and it's the worst name on Twitter <laughs> uh, at Craig Hoffman or you know there's a contact page on HoffmanShow.com like I, I'm curious how many people were aware of some of these other issues that we touched on because. As, as we've said a couple of times, like we could spend hours and perhaps another time we'll sit down again and go over some of this stuff because that's fascinating to me because it's we're at a point that the biggest sports in America have been in place for a long time. Like the 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 maybe the pecking orders change, but basketball, football and baseball and hockey, I guess, would be fourth. Colin um, Coward would say soccer. But whatever. Soccer. Yeah. I mean, but. Even that, like FIFA, for all of its problems, has been around for a while. Um, Now maybe it's being held a lot more accountable, and that's another interesting um, thing, obviously, to see play out. But like the NBA and the NFL, 
um, the ones that are regulated here in this country, FIFA is off in Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, but the ones, the leagues that are regulated in this country have been around for a long time. So to see another sport literally forming before our eyes and to be able to see the struggles that it takes along the way is really, really interesting. I'm curious how interesting it is to fans who aren't as interested in the product, and I'm certainly not as interested in the product as people punching each other in the face, as you said. It's not for but everybody. The, the business side of it, that is that is endlessly fascinating to me. So yeah, you're right. I mean, cool. the, these questions that you guys deal with, to, to wrap things up here, these, these are largely settled for you for the most part. Mm-hmm. It is, if you are interested in the business of sport, I'll put it that way. Yes. It is the Wild West in, in MMA right now. It is the absolute absolute wild west and even as much progress as they've made um there is so far left to go before we're even remotely in the same kind of order of magnitude not merely in size of course but in the scope of the regulatory framework and oversight and to your point about before transparency it looks like face punching and it is but yeah the, but the layers underneath there they, that's what keeps me interested i mean look how many fights can i really watch before, right. before I just lose my, my cool. But I, I realized once that wave hit in MMA, I got in on something that was, I mean, it is the gold rush to San Francisco every day when I open that laptop. It's craziness yeah. all the time. Uh, if you want to read Luke's stuff, again, MMAfighting.com. You can listen to him, Sirius XM, uh, three days a week, right? Three days a week. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sirius XM 93, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. There you go. Uh, so check it out there. If you got Sirius XM, MMAfighting.com, if you do or don't. Um, and on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Luke, I appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Anytime. Appreciate it. Call the rapper. Huge, huge thanks to Luke Thomas for giving me all of that time and then for letting me on his show. Because we hung out at the SiriusXM studios uh, downtown DC, and I didn't feel like driving back and sitting in traffic, so I was, he was like, "Hang out," and then wound up throwing me on the air, and wound up asking me Al Hassan questions. So that was fun. He's like, "What are you doing there?" I was like, "Not sitting in traffic." Um, called a wrap today. Getting back to the basketball, and a question: If the supposed too soft two-time MVP that didn't really deserve it goes off for 38 points in a playoff game that was more physical than any we can remember in recent memory. What do all the old people say? Shrug emoji? Probably not because they don't know how to use emojis. But that was my thought last night. We always hear about how much more physical the game was in the early 2000s or the late 90s or the mid 90s or really any time before now um how hand checking was legal and how that if it was allowed today would just turn Steph Curry into some I mean some people are a little bit more reserved and say oh he wouldn't be the best player in the league or playing like the best player in the league um over the last two seasons and and he wouldn't uh he wouldn't be great. He'd just be good. He'd just be like a spot-up shooter. While others would say he just he wouldn't be able to exist at all in the league. I think last night kind of showed you that those people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Some of them are very accomplished basketball players, but being a very accomplished basketball player doesn't mean that you're a very accomplished or worthy basketball analyst. Those two things are not synonymous reasonable people can disagree and after all this is all conjecture anyway but I think last night showed that like containing Steph Curry just because you're allowed to hand check him or containing Steph Curry just because you chuck him around a little bit doesn't mean that Steph Curry is going to turn into a pumpkin that dude 
is super tough. He's incredibly skilled. And the combination of those two things, both a mental, by the way, and a physical toughness, the combination of all of those things make him what he is. And to think that you could just stick your hands on him and all of a sudden he'd be rendered moot is just moronic, and it always has been. LeBron tried to chuck him around. Tristan Thompson tried to chuck him around. J.R. Smith tried to get physical. Guess what? He runs around you. And then he runs through a weave of screens. And then all of a sudden you miscommunicate because you're trying to grab, you know, you're grabbing at him, you're doing all this, and you can't catch him. And then you're you're yelling to your teammate to get help. And then he does, or sometimes he doesn't. And then one of the two guys, either the guy he was guarding or the guy that you're chasing is wide open. Uh, and, and if Steph's open, the guy that you're chasing, it's three points. And if the other guy's open, it's two and a dunk. He's just an offensive force like we've never seen before. Not to say there haven't been offensive forces to his level. Of course, Shaq, Jordan, um, I mean, LeBron in his own special way puts uh, as much pressure on a defense. It's just different. It's a different kind of pressure because it's in a different spot on the floor and it happens to mathematically be a greater pressure because it's three instead of two and at the rate he makes them the percentages don't balance out that that it's like oh he makes so many more twos that it's really the same no no no. he makes so many threes that is the, the it is more punitive um to make a mistake against Steph Curry than any other player in league history it's just again that's not trying to say he's better than Michael Jordan it's just math which some of you will still get super mad about and some of you will understand because you're smart but I hope last night just it's not going to put it to rest but at least for some like if you're one of those people going oh man the old old physical game Steph would have been useless like hope you had an epiphany last night that's really all um the dude's awesome I it's sad just like we started talking about how sad it is LeBron has to deal with some of the the criticism that he does it's equally ridiculous the criticism that Steph Curry gets um although the shoes that he said were lit yeah Steph those are those are not cool those are like I get those from my dad to wear with his dad jeans but I don't think that's who you're targeting my dad's a 50 year old white guy which is Great, Dad. Speaking of the physicality, just real quick, the officiating last night, yeah, it was poor. It was very, very poor. And some of it wouldn't have to do with the physicality. Some of it was just like, uh, that was out of bounds off of Andre Iguodala. That sequence was incredible, by the way. Missed call, and then the Cavs, Give up four, I believe. It's maybe three or four offensive rebounds. I think it was three offensive rebounds, so they get off four possessions and then finally score. And you're going, okay, sweet. Ball don't lie. Miss. Oh, wait. The Cavs got, or the, the Warriors got it back. All right. Well, they survived again, and, and now they're not going to be punished for the bad call. Oh, just kidding. The Warriors got the rebound again. And then by the third one, you're just like, you know what? At this point, it's on you guys. Like, you had your chances. Grab the ball. Um, but 
the physicality, I thought Jeff Van Gundy nailed it on the broadcast. Like, there's nothing worse than, oh, they're letting them play. Um, I Yes, let them play. But letting them play means enforcing the rules. Like, there are rules in a book that are written and that are – there's a, a case book as well. So it's, it's hey, this is how these rules are enforced. In case you were wondering, in case the written rule is not clear enough on its own, this is what you're supposed to do. And yet the inconsistency drives me insane. And I had an idea last night, um, you know – Van Gundy and Mark Jackson and Mike Breen were talking about uh, you just want consistency. And, and as someone who's played, like that is completely true. Like If I can play physical, fine, and I understand that the other guy's going to get to play physical on me. But if I get to play physical and then – or if, if I don't get to play physical and you're calling tic-tac fouls, then why am I getting mauled on the other end? You know, or in what they were saying was you'd want it within a series. Like often it's it's going to be somewhat consistent within a game. Although last night was weird. Last night there was both a lot of contact that went uncalled and a lot of whistles, um, which I think just tells you how physical that game was. But you want it consistent throughout a series, and it should be consistent in every game. But again, we're dealing with human beings here. I wonder if the NBA should go to what Major League Baseball does, where they select umpires for the World Series. Now, the umpires will rotate, and they add the outfielders, um, umpires for the playoffs, and so there's a bunch of guys that wind up rotating through all of the four infield spots and the two outfield spots. But So you might get a, a different strike zone from night to night, but you're also dealing with different pitchers, largely, you know, the starters. Um, but... When it comes to, I mean, I guess the hitters are probably like, yo, what's up? Um, but anyway, with the, <laughs> yo, what's up? That's the dumbest thing I've ever said on this podcast. The point is, I wonder if the NBA should stick with the same three referees throughout the, throughout the entire finals. And it'd be hard, because do you do playoffs, like, do you have it refs advance in the playoffs? So do you have, you know, four crew or whatever, eight crews that make the, uh, the first round and then four crews. And then you have one crew that does the Eastern conference finals and one crew that does the West. And one of those crews is also your finals crew so that you don't have a massive gap in between games officiated. So that they're not rusty. Do you save your best crew for the finals after, say, the second round? Like, they get the conference finals off? Like, they could figure all that stuff out, but you just think if they have the same three officials, then maybe you'd get some more consistency in the calls. Whatever the solution is, they've got to do something. Um, And it's really helping out the officials. This isn't a blame-the-official session because, well, yes— the the out of bounds call in Iguodala that everyone went nuts about like I tweeted about that one. I, I refereeing in the NBA is really hard, but I don't really understand how you missed that one. It was blatantly obvious in real speed, and it was right in front of an official. Like get it right. But unless you've been to an NBA game and sat up close, you don't understand. It's impossible on television to understand how fast this game is when played by NBA athletes it is so fast and these guys do such an amazing job 
of getting most of the calls right without the benefit of replay, without the benefit of slow motion, in real time, not always at optimal angles. It's not like they have all the camera angles that they can quickly consult or even take their time to consult. It is their bare eyes what they see. And overall, they do a pretty remarkable job considering that. However, it can certainly reasonably be better. And they've talked about, Adam Silver talked about uh, before the finals in a State of the League press conference, adding a fourth official. I don't think it's the worst idea. You don't necessarily want more fouls, but you do want fouls called correctly. Because this is a game with rules, and they're supposed to be administered the same way every night, and right now it's inconsistent. So if we're going to have physical basketball, that's fine, but I don't want to see fouls. I don't I don't watch basketball to see players get fouled and and not get benefit get get that called. The whole idea is that they won't do it if it's being called because they don't want to foul out. They want to hurt their team, give up free throws, extra possessions, etc. So call the game correctly and let the results be what they may. That's all I ask. Seems rather reasonable, doesn't it? Huge thanks to Luke Thomas again for his time. Um, That was such a fascinating conversation. Um, Something that I definitely want to follow up on. All those tangents that we touched on, I want to get back into that stuff with him at some point. Uh, Thanks, as always, to you for listening. Again, you can subscribe on iTunes. You go to hoffmanshow.com slash blog. There's a nice pretty button that says Hoffman Show on iTunes. Click it. Then click subscribe or search The Hoffman Show on the podcast app, on your phone, mobile device, however you put this audio in your earballs. Thanks for listening. That is it. That is all. Goodbye.